0: So, good afternoon. My name is Jeffrey Myron. I'm a senior lecturer in economics at Harvard and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, First of all, welcome. Thank you for coming. This is the second annual of what we hope it will be a long series of Cato papers on public policy. The goal of the papers and the conference is to produce new economics research on the pros and cons of government policy. You might think that since it's Cato, we're more interested in the cons than in the pros, but um, <laughs> you know, the, yes, many of the people with Cato have a prior, that there are more cons than pros, but we're willing to be wrong. We just need to be convinced. So uh, the goal is to have serious research that looks at these public policies from all sides and tries to figure out which ones work and which ones don't. Uh, Let me next sort of say thank you, first of all, to Cato for funding and support, all the organization and the facilities and all that. Say thank you specifically to the Searle Foundation and to the Earhart Foundation, which have provided funding uh, specifically for this event. I want to thank uh, Ronlin Tadaro, who most of you have interacted with, and Ashley Benson for all the help in organizing. It's made it incredibly easy for me to uh, organize this. And in advance, uh, thank all the authors and discussants for a great set of papers. Um, and uh, comments uh, on those papers. So the framework is the authors will have 30 minutes to present the papers. If you don't have them yet, they're copies of all the papers outside along the wall. Then each of the discussants will have 20 minutes, and that leaves 20 minutes for Q&A discussion amongst the panelists and the authors, uh, and so on. Uh, We are at the moment sort of short, seem to be short, one discussant. Um, I'm hoping that that will be remedied before it's time for that discussant to come up. Uh, but if not, we'll just have a little bit uh, more time for discussion or a little bit more time for a coffee break for the first paper. So without further ado, the first paper is an evaluation of the term auction facility plan by Effie uh, ben from Harvard University.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, This paper is um, a very descriptive uh, paper about one of the most important liquidity facilities, one of the most important intervention tools that was used by the Federal Reserve during most of the crisis. And uh, it will be difficult for me to um, evaluate the effectiveness of the policy. Um, But what I'm going to do is present um, um, Many facts that are based on data that was released by the Federal Reserve uh, about a year ago, and uh, try to draw some conjectures about um, the potential effects uh, and the pros and cons of, uh, of the term auction facility. So, um, the Fed used the ter- term auction facility to provide term funding, more than uh, longer than very short term, to eligible depository institutions. From first auction was on December. 2007, and it eventually faded out uh, by March 2010. The purpose of the term auction facility, also known as TUF, was to inject terms, um, inject term funds through a broader range of counterparties, so not only the regular participants in the, uh, you know, the regular dealer brokers or the regular participants in the um, discount window, and against a broader range of collateral, not necessarily only. Um, government paper. Um, so, this was the main w- w- one of the objectives. But the other goal of TAF of at the time was to um, reduce the pressure, uh, to release the pressure uh, that took place in the term uh, market. So, you, know, you might, might remember from, the, from before the crisis, they were concerned that the TED spread was very high, or that the rate at which uh, banks lent to each other in the unsecure market for terms of several months, but not only overnight, was too high. And that basically brought to um, um, a collapse of the interbank unsecure lending. So the over, overall uh, goal of TAF was to ensure that liquidity provision can be disseminated efficiently, even when the unsecured interbank markets were under stress. Um, OK, so sorry that this is a bit blurred, but you know, this will give you a uh, um, a good, uh, a good picture and, and a sense of how important TUF was. What you see here is the balance sheet of the Fed, starting in early 07, going up to the end of 09. This is the asset side of the balance sheet. And each of the colors correspond to one of the programs that was used by uh, the Fed. The pink one here is TUF. And you can see that uh, it was huge. The only one that seems to exceed it is the dark red or the maroon above it, which are basically um, are not private market uh, facilities. Those were the uh, swap lines between the Fed and uh, the ECB, the, the Swiss bank, and uh, the Bank of England. But when you look into um, interactions of the Fed, not with other central banks, but with um, uh, private firms, with financial institutions, TAF was the largest plan, larger than TALF, larger than almost any other plan. Um, at a time, and you know we don't know much about TAF. Was it effective? Wasn't it? How did it work? Like, um, you know, how did the loans look like? What was the collateral uh, like? Do we see any patterns that are unique to TAF? These are some of the descriptive um, statistics and notions that I would like to cover today. So, you know, let's let's talk about uh, uh, broadly about the effectiveness of TAF. First, as far as we know. Um, all loans have been paid in full. You know, let me state it uh, differently. We don't know any default on the loans. So you know, the argument is not whether the government has lost directly money um, in TAF. But there is a question whether TAF had any impact on the interbank markets. And there is a debate um, um, in that regards. There is a paper by McAndrews and co-authors from the New York Fed uh, First paper that evaluated uh, TAF, didn't evaluate it all the way through, only up to mid and then later to late uh, 08, and argues that uh, it led to lower rates. What they do basically is to look into the uh, change in the LIBOR or the TED spread um, following day's announcement of the TAF auction. Um, A competent paper, uh, a paper by uh, Taylor and Williams, uh, with a slight change in methodology find no effect at all. And the argument that they make was that the stress in uh, money markets was not driven by liquidity, but was rather, uh, was rather driven by counterparty risk. And in a very simple regression, in an unstructured regression setting, they find that counterparty risk proxied by CDS spread is uh, the most important statistic in explaining um, the level of the interest rate, the level of the LIBOR, and not the liquidity provision by the Fed. So the debate is, is open whether uh, TAF was uh, effective or not, and I'm not going to talk about that. I would rather go and look uh, more directly uh, into the data. So what I do in this paper again is to use the micro-level data that was released by uh, the Fed. The Fed didn't release the data immediately. This is important. As the auctions went, you know, the auctions basically benefited from the secrecy that the the discount window um, is subject to. And despite many requests, the Fed never uh, released the information. The argument was that you don't want to have the discount window stigma in which banks would be penalized for borrowing because it's going going to signal that they are in distress. And you also don't want to deter banks who in need to come and to borrow um, when they need. Eventually, the Fed released uh, the data, I believe, in April (coughs) 2011. And uh, you know some of you might have uh, seen there was some exchange. You know several months later, uh, there were a couple of articles in Bloomberg uh, that were trying to document some of the facts in uh, in the Fed lending. And you know they made some mistakes by double counting the loans. Um, very harsh uh, reaction by the Fed, but many of the many of the facts that were documented. Um, in in a very simple way by the the Bloomberg journalists are actually um, the correct facts, as I will show you. So I'm going to document the nature of loans made by the Fed. Most importantly, who are the borrowers? What are the terms of the loans? What is the nature of the collateral pledged by the borrower? And also, if we have time, discuss the potential consequences of the secrecy of TAF um, or the discount window stigma. So overall, let's look into the data. Um, the data is available. There is a link um, in the paper. Uh, the paper is, by the way, incomplete, uh, missing many parts. But there is a link in the paper that can take you to the to the data on the Fed uh, website. Overall, uh, about uh, four thousand and two hundred individual loans. You see the terms here. So the, the mean loan amount was around nine, all, all amounts here are in millions, around nine hundred and six million dollars range, uh, between one point four. Million to 15 billion, obviously the larger banks, Bank of America, Citibank, Barclays. Uh, the term of the loan ranged between uh, 28 days, or, sorry, between 13 days and 85, but mostly were between 80, uh, 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 28 days uh, facilities. Let me say something about the way that it worked. Banks had to submit um, bids to the auction on some days that uh, that, that were announced. And eventually, there was an auction that was supposedly cut um, the demand and supply for the funds. And this is how the interstate was uh, determined. Interstate on average was, uh, this is annualized, about one percentage point. But of course, from ranged for, uh, from something like almost uh, from 4.7% in the earlier days of the facility, in late 07 and early and mid 08 up to 25 basis point, which is the lowest rate uh, that we see by uh, uh, 2010. The amount of collateral that was pledged was on, av- was on average $4 billion. You can see that the value of the collateral far exceeds the loan. So we are going to calculate later on the loan to collateral ratio. And that's going to be an important uh, factor that we look into. It seems to be very conservative. Just take it at face value about 25% loan to value, but it's hard to know how valuation was determined here. You'll see later that a lot of the collateral was um, um, made of structured finance assets, and it's still not clear to me whether the value that is being quoted by the Fed is at face value or somehow market value. So even though we'll see something, that's something that looks like a haircut of 70%, you know this may not be the actual haircut, because the haircut should be determined by market value and not by the face value of the debt. Loan to collateral again. Uh, so that would be the inverse of the haircut is around thirty three percent but ranges anywhere this is probably these are probably um, um, coding mistakes in the in the Fed data, but anyway, I have them here from zero to zero to one okay so let 's look into the uh, collateral composition and one of the nice things about the uh, uh, disclosure by the Fed is that although the Fed didn't disclose any individual security that was pledged by the banks. They basically put them into some bins, into some asset classes. And when you think about the collateral, it's not as if this is a loan of 100 against, let's say, 200 in treasuries. Banks have uh, pledged many different assets, pulled together many different assets of different types as collateral. So we have a lot of heterogeneity within banks, within pool, uh, which we can can analyze. So we can see that on average, this is thinking about uh, absolute terms, the largest collateral uh, type that was used were residential mortgages. So on average, around $3.8 million. You look into a typical, a typical uh, loan, and in the collateral, uh, something like $3.8 billion were um, residential mortgages. Second category, is going to play an important role, especially for international banks, is asset-backed securities. Asset-backed securities is $2.6 billion. The definition of the Fed is not clear exactly what they mean by asset-backed securities, but in the notes um, to what they describe, um, these are securities that are backed by um, uh, 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 junior assets that are are secured by subprime mortgages. So this is basically euphemism for uh, CDOs and ABS CDOs. Commercial loans second category, and we can see most of the categories, it is interesting that the smallest category is what is the category that we, w- we would perceive to be the safest one, US treasuries. And one of the things that we will see in this facility is that some assets that we can a priori classify as being maybe slightly riskier or much more riskier than others are going to be more dominant here than, than the use of treasuries. Okay, you know this is uh, the collateral composition by credit rating, as much as you are willing to uh, to, to 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 trust credit ratings today. Uh, but you can see that among the AAA-rated securities, um, the vast majority of the collateral that was pledged was not necessarily U.S. Treasury or agency, or even uh, MBS and CMOS that were issued by the by the by the agencies, but actually other AAA-rated. Which are mostly um, asset-backed securities, okay? And then you have the other categories: double A-rated, A-rated, triple B-rated, and other investment grade. These are basically um, loans that did not carry credit rating but were classified into some credit rating bins above triple B minus, uh, according to some internal models. Okay, so um, you know the first look into the data is to look into the determinants of the loan terms. Now, in the paper itself. I'm looking into four loan terms. I'm looking into the loan amount, or the log of the loan amount, the interest rate, the loan term, and loan to collateral. For the sake of the presentation, I have omitted the interest rate and the loan term. And as you can see in the paper, uh, when you look into it, is that there is basically no variation. None of the explanatory variables seems to explain the rate and the term. This is not very surprising. It's an auction. So all the banks that participate in the auction eventually are being cut the same interest rate and the same term for everyone. There's no cross-sectional variation within the auction um, that can explain it. And indeed, if you look into the interest rate uh, regressions, once we include the year-by-month fixed effect, the R-square is 99%. The interest rate basically follows uh, the crisis. Um, The same holds for the long term. But interestingly, there is way more action in the loan amount, and especially in the loan to collateral. So this is um, a regression. The between is uh, all the regressions include um, year by month fixed effects. The between ones do not include bank fixed effects, and these include bank fixed, fixed effects, and identify variation from uh, repeated borrowing by the same bank. And what you can see here is that the Fed seems to have been using, and you know, this is what they should have done, the information in uh, the nature of the collateral in order to somewhat price the loans, but you cannot price the loans directly by the interest rate, So the way that you price them is basically using a haircut, how much, how much, how much of the collateral is pledgeable. So this is exactly what you would expect the Fed to do. Um, you know, This might be an indication that at least this part of the job has been done correctly. You cannot quantify whether it was done um, 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 sufficient, in a sufficient way. So you know, one of the interesting, and um, um, um fact is that when you look into loan-to-collateral, you see that the coefficients, and these are dummies, so you can take these are dummy whether there is any presence of uh, asset-backed securities in the, in the pool. I'm using here dummies to make sure that I can exploit the, uh, all the, inf- the information in all the loans because otherwise you have a significant number of loans that don't have asset-backed securities at all, but there is also analysis that is based on the share in asset-backed securities. So having asset-backed securities reduces Um, The loan-to-value collateral, or basically it implies a higher um, haircut, makes a lot of sense if you view asset-backed securities as being uh, riskier securities. (coughs) Treasuries increasing loan-to-value or reducing the haircut, makes a lot of sense because we do view treasuries here um, within this pool of assets as being the safest assets, even though most of them are rated, um, but these are the, the, the plain vanilla treasuries. This is interesting by the way because if you think about an auction and within an auction the fed can still utilize a tool that would lead to a non-pricing aspect of the loan by playing with the loan to collateral or the loan amount okay So this is just looking uh, very uh, broadly into the loan terms So let's 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 look into the evolution of I just want to check how much time I have into the evolution of uh, TAF over time and um, what you see here are the incremental lending in TAF. Remember, the first um, auction takes place in December 27. The last one is in March 2010. There are some months, as you see here in the peak of the crisis, in which there is more than one auction. And even though some of the largest auctions, auction something like $150 billion, you have more than one auction. You, uh, 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 you have two auctions, you can get something like 300. Or 350 billion dollars um, in a month. This is the incremental lending, and so you can think about it as origination of new loans. But many of these loans would be rolling over of existing loans. You know, remember these are loans for 28 days. Societe Generale gets a loan for 15 billion dollars, and it's been rolled over um, as go. Now, what is interesting is uh, when one looks into the data. Um, And I've done some of it before the Fed released the the information. This is how I came uh, interested in that. Because initially, um, the Fed didn't release the information, but the banks had to report um, the lending from DAF in the call reports. And instead of, of course, in order to disguise the lending as to avoid the stigma of the the discount window, uh, the Fed um, basically allowed them to lump it with some other um, some other liabilities that they had. But when you look around auction times into major change, changes in these liabilities, one could detect which banks it was. And when I first looked into the data, I saw a large uh, number of foreign banks. So these, are, these would be the uh, U.S. branches of foreign banks. But now that we actually have the data, we can confirm this uh, um, with the data. So this is how it looks like. Um, this is basically um, splitting the lending volume, the incremental lending volume, between domestic uh, banks and foreign banks. By foreign banks here, uh, um, tough tough loans could have been granted to to uh, depository institutions as long as they had branches or agencies in the US. And 58% of the um, volume of lending went to international banks. And we see here this interesting pattern in which, earlier on, starting in 07, a lot of the lending is going to the European banks. You can see that the red line is above the blue line. Later on, after the crisis uh, uh, fades somewhat, again, a lot of the lending goes to the European banks. In the midst of the crisis, now there is a lot of lending to um, um, institutions, to US banks. Uh, This is a if you want to look into the, the table, it would give you the full list, but if you want to look into the 50 largest borrowers um, under TAF, uh, where this is uh, defined by the total amount of borrowing that they had, and again, the red bars would refer to uh, foreign institutions, the blue bars would refer to uh, domestic institutions, um, you can see basically that, you know, it's a, if I remember correctly, about 34 or 35 are foreign institutions, about 15 14 or 15 are uh, domestic institutions. The five largest borrowers are Barclays, Bank of America, uh, Bank of Scotland, Wachovia, uh, Wells Fargo, and Dresden. So it might be rational to lend to the uh, foreign banks. Uh, the only question is something that I'm trying to understand is why was there more lending to foreign banks than to uh, U.S. banks? And you know, I, I don't have a very good answer. One explanation was that these were institutions that were in uh, dire positions because they have issued securities in uh, US dollars, and they had to. Uh, these assets suffered uh, uh, major shocks. Another explanation is that they had a lot of liabilities. Showed them liabilities in US dollars as part of the conduits that uh, they have issued, uh, but but still, you know, one wants to understand what exactly uh, is happening here. Okay. So you know, now that we see that there are many of the. Uh, uh, banks that were borrowing were foreign banks. Let's see whether we, we find any difference in the nature of the collateral, which is the main tool that the banks can use here to affect um, their borrowing. And it's also the main tool that the only tool that the Fed can use um, within an auction um, to, to um, determine non pricing elements um, of the loans. So, you know, look into residential mortgages, they account for, uh, for an average of 28% of the um, collateral pool. Remember, the collateral within a loan has many different assets. Um, and they, they can be found in 460 loans that were made to domestic institutions. Now, the, the residential mortgages, you know, although they account for a very uh, large fraction, they can only be found in uh, five loans made to foreign institutions. There are about, about 1,000 loans to uh, foreign institutions and 3,000 to domestic institutions. But obviously, the Fed. Probably would not take as collateral, let's say, French or German mortgages. So that that makes a lot of sense. But the asset type that seems to dominate the uh, borrowing by foreign uh, institutions are asset-backed securities. Okay? And this is the second category. You can see that it's about 8% higher for the international, um, um, for for the foreign (laughs) institution than for the US institution. There are some other differences. Um, but this is the largest one. You can also see that it's not only that the fraction is higher, but asset-backed securities can be found in most, in more than ninety percent of the loans that were made by uh, that were made to foreign institutions, but in uh, about ten percent of the loans that were made to domestic institutions. Okay, so um, you know wh- why um, why should we care about um, these uh, asset-backed securities and um, the fact that the asset-backed securities seem, seem to have been playing played a major role in the collateral structure of the foreign bank versus the domestic banks. You know, just to remind you that um, um, CDOs and most of the ABS that you see here are basically CDOs or ABS CDOs were basically at the heart of the financial crisis. So, if you look um, um, early 09 to the total write-ons that were made by financial institutions around the world, including insurance companies and other in, uh, other financial institutions so was about uh, half a trillion dollars. This is the number here. of uh, which 40%, $218 billion dollars, um, were write-ons that were made because of ABS-CDOs. And you can see here some of the uh, institutions that had the largest ex- exposure or the largest write to ABS-CDOs in the US Citigroup ba- city was the largest one, followed by Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase. Many of the European bank uh, banks uh, had had uh, major uh, exposure. So one explanation for the fact that we have so many foreign banks borrowing uh, in TAF and pledging what seems to be a lot of asset securities is that these institutions were also the, institutions that, the same institutions that were exposed to ABS-CDOs. It was the only collateral that they had. Collateral was illiquid, couldn't really be market-to-market, would not really reveal the true value of the collateral. That was the only collateral that they could have uh, uh, pledged. Uh, but but it, it is interesting because that you see that there is still exposure of some American institutions, Citibank, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan Chase. And you know, as I'm going to show you in, in one or two slides, these institutions hardly pledged asset-backed securities as collateral even though they had some of the largest exposures. So this is the uh, list of the 50 largest pledges of asset-backed securities. And this is basically le- looking into, at the loan level, the, the average Pledge of an asset-backed security within the loan, and you can see that it seems to be completely domina- uh, dominated by foreign institutions. Uh, the only large expo- so the largest, largest exposure is Societe Generale, then comes Dexia, UBS, um, Royal Bank of Scotland. The only two financial institutions that held significant ones were State Street and uh, uh, the US Central FCU, which is basically. Um, the central bank of the credit unions in the U.S., some sort of uh, a fund of fund or a a credit union of credit unions. Otherwise, Citibank is about here. This is the amount that they are pledged as uh, collateral. Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, you hardly see them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's actually interesting if the purpose, if the reason that we see foreign banks pledging mostly Asset-backed securities, if it's driven by exposure to asset-backed securities, why don't we see some of the largest um, US national institutions that were exposed to asset-backed securities not pledging um, more of that? Okay, so uh, now I'm moving maybe to the more uh, speculative part of uh, of the paper, which is trying to um, offer uh, another an additional reason why the Fed was lending so much for. Um, financial institutions, for foreign, to foreign financial institutions. And I want to say that this is, uh, um, the regressions are not at the point in which they can make, uh, one can make a causal inference. But let me give it a shot. So one of the declared goals of TAF was to reduce stress in the unsecured term interbank market, which is also known as the LIBOR. So the LIBOR is being quoted in London for each currency, for different maturities, and the way that it's being determined is in a survey conducted by the BBA, the British Bankers Associ- Association, every day, and being sampled by Reuters. Um, the LIBOR is an incredibly important number. The U.S. Uh, LIBOR for three months, the U.S. LIBOR for six months, this is a benchmark against many floating-grade securities. or all, Almost all floating rate dollar-denominated uh, floating-grade securities in the world are being benchmarked. This is where the crisis was. Because remember, the LIBOR is the market in which banks lend in an unsecured way to each other. Okay? The overnight is where they lend to each other overnight in a secured manner. So the difference between the two was the concern. And the fact that banks were not lending to each other, some argument was that it was made because of liquidity. And that's the argument that um, uh, led to, t- to TAF. Remember the paper by uh, uh, Taylor and Williams that argues that it was counterparty risk and not liquidity. So the way that this has been conducted is that there is a set uh, uh, um, of financial institutions. Here you see the, the, exactly the closed uh, list of the financial institutions that participated in the LIBOR survey during the years of the crisis. 13 out of which are four, and three are US banks, and they are sampled at 11 a.m., and this is going to determine the uh, LIBOR. So. What the facts that I'm going to show you show that these banks were more likely to get loans. And the question is whether this means that the Fed was trying to inject liquidity directly to these banks, because once the banks that determine the index are flushed with liquidity, rates would go down. Or whether this is just these institutions happened to demand um, the liquidity in times that the LIBOR market is actually stressed. It's not clear exactly how the Fed can. uh, inject I have to say it up front directly uh, money to select group of uh, of uh, banks given that this is an auction okay so let's look into um, some of the numbers so first we see here the allocation between uh, the non libor banks that also include foreign non-liable banks that's the blue um, the blue line and the liable banks that's the red line So about between 30 and 40% of the loans went to these also very large institutions that are uh, those that are sampled for the LIBO. So here are some regressions. Um, what I've done here was to collapse uh, the data at the facility level. So there are around 52 um, auctions, and within every facility, to calculate the share of the facility that went to the um, that went to the LIBOR banks, those that are sampled by the survey of the BBA. As, as you can see here. At the facility level, the LIBOR bank's share is increasing when the LIBOR rate is higher. This is the average five-day, three-month US dollar LIBOR before the auction. This is consistent with the fact that these are the banks that now need a lot of liquidity because they determine the LIBOR, and the LIBOR rate now is high. And if the objective is to reduce some of the LIBOR because of issues with liquidity, this might be the institution that you want to flush with liquidity. The issue is, of course, that you cannot do it in a, you know, in, in a pure auction, unless this also happens to be the institution with the highest needs that are going to bid the highest rates. Um, so I try to do it two ways, one of them just the share on the level of the LIBOR. The other one is a measure of elasticity that you can see here. Um, so these are basically univariate regressions. Um, and as much as you want to look into the correlation, uh, elasticity of uh, lending um, to liable banks is uh, about uh, 23% uh, um, higher when the, when the LIBOR is higher, and we have the negative elasticity um, for foreign non-LIBOR banks. So the next regression tries to look into um, loan-level data and have a dummy whether the loan is uh, um, made to a LIBOR bank or to a foreign non-LIBOR bank or to a domestic non-LIBOR bank. So the domestic non-LIBOR, LIBOR, the domestic non-LIBOR banks are less likely to obtain funding when the LIBOR is high. This is also consistent. You cannot really hear control for time trend with the fact that they are getting less money earlier on. So I don't want to overstress that. Both the LIBOR and the foreign non libor are more likely to obtain uh, loans uh, when uh, when the LIBOR is high, but look into the difference in the uh, relative economic uh, significance of that, which is conditioning on the on it uh, on the means of each one, which is higher for the LIBOR banks. So the question, of course, how can this be done? How can it be that in an auction you can uh, basically, you know, if, and this is completely speculative you can basically um, achieve some target or target in some of the banks. Some of the the answers (coughs) come from here. This is a regression that regresses the loan-to-value, which is the inverse of the haircut. And what you can see, for example, this is true for the foreign banks and for the libo banks, is that in general, the libo banks had a large curve. This is, by the way, controlling for... um, um, Controlling for some loan controls like the size and the loan of the others, and for collateral type fixes. So this is not driven necessarily by time varying collateral effects. Collateral but you see that the restriction, the restriction on the uh, on the restriction on the uh, liable banks is lower when the LIBO is higher. This is the interaction between the BIMAN LIBO and the liable bank. So uh, it's as if I'm applying. Um, a different haircut to the loan in times that the LIBOR is high for some banks and not for other banks. Now, we saw before in some of in the determinants of the loans that we seem to see a lot of activity coming from the haircut, from the loan to value. There's no activity in the interest rate, there is no activity in, um, in the term because they are determined for everyone. There is no cross sectional variation in them within a facility, there is a lot of variation. Um, within a facility cross-sectional variation in loan-to-value. Um, you know, so this is, this is all evidence that shows that maybe either these banks were really anxious to borrow at times of uh, high LIBOR, or that there was a way maybe to um, um, give them um, an advantage by treating their collateral slightly different. Uh, but, but again, as I said, you know, th- these are very preliminary, uh, not more than correlation um, results. So, you know, move to the conclusion. Uh, TAF allocated the majority of the loans to foreign banks that pledged riskier collateral. These are, these are facts. Okay? About 60% of the loans went to foreign institutions. These foreign institutions pledged asset-backed securities. Asset-backed securities, here, as we said, is euphemism for CDOs. Collateral was priced, and the Fed seems to have done it uh, in that way because that when you look into the uh, lo- terms of the loans, What, a priori, would seem to be like the appropriate haircuts was applied to um, at least treasuries and um, ABS. Need to understand the Fed's actions. Was the Fed trying to influence the labor market directly? Was the Fed concerned about the financial stability of some of these foreign institutions that were on the verge of um, a collapse? Were these foreign financial institutions were exposed to major shock to the balance sheet because of exposure to ABS CDOs? Were these uh, foreign financial institutions Uh, were subject to um, risk of falling over the debt which was denominated in U.S. dollars. It's almost as if we have here um, an emerging market crisis happening in the U.S., but the emerging markets are Germany and uh, all the other European countries that cannot raise money in uh, U.S. dollars. But the other question, which is beyond the the scope of this paper, which I got curious by, um, by working on this project, is Is the falling, were European banks in worse position than American banks already in 07 and 08? Because we have seen before that the foreign banks, most of them are European, were getting more money in the earlier uh, term of the crisis, and that money was secured by asset-backed securities. Now, was this information that was supposed to be shared with market participants, well, the issue, and here I am, you know, this this might be uh, some sort of... uh, um, a diversion from, 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 from the main point of the paper. The issue is that the information that is contained in this transaction was not available to market participants. But perhaps there was some information, maybe in light of what we see here, of the same institution that gets money earlier on, pledge risk, collateral, and eventually, as we know, as many of them not being nationalized or almost on the verge of failing, maybe um, the idea of the discount window stigma is something that we should avoid. The Fed should lend the money if it's concerned about liquidity, but should also disclose in real time uh, who is getting the money and what is the collateral that is being pledged um, in return. So of course, this can cut both ways if you think about what would what be the sources of adverse information. Um, but this is at least worth um, a discussion, given what the data reveals. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. First discussant, Simon Gilchrist from Boston University. And we do have our second discussant here.
2: <clears throat> okay. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and to discuss this paper. Um, I don't know too much about um, the details of the term auction facility, so it gave me opportunity to think about the term auction facility, as well as about how the term auction facility fit into the general policies that the Fed followed during the financial crisis. So um, what I thought I would do is, is take some time to sort of review what types of Fed policies were engaged in during the crisis and where TAF fits into that, and then talk about some specifics of the TAF program that might help us think a little bit about the types of questions that Effie is raising. So if you sort of ask a Fed guy what they were trying to do, I think they would describe the following. Stimulate economic activity. Prevent a sustained decline in inflation. forestall adverse feedback loops that occur between the financial system and the macroeconomy. Support the functioning of credit markets and reduce the financial strains by providing liquidity to the private sector. And basically use all the available tools to promote and ensure financial stability. Now, um, we can divide sort of Fed policy, I think, into two eras, what I would call a traditional policy response, which was between the summer of 2007 and spring 2008, and then a non-conventional policy. So in the traditional policy response, the Fed actively lowered the funds rate, easing monetary policy, and then they actively provided liquidity to depository institutions through discount window lending. Okay, And that's a very standard procedure for the Fed. And then somewhere in the spring of 2008, they shifted what we would call non-traditional policy measures. And these policy measures, I think we can divide between things that I would say look more like monetary policy and things that look less like monetary policy and perhaps more like fiscal policy. So to me, what looks more like monetary policy are things like LSAPs and extended path communications. So QE1, QE2, and QE3 are basically open market purchases of various asset categories. All right. And then the Fed also actively engaged in the provision of liquidity to financial intermediaries that wouldn't normally fall into the discount window lending, and I would, mostly the primary dealers. But I would say that's very much in the spirit of monetary policy, lender of last resort, that type of thing. Okay. And then what looks less like monetary policy are things like direct lending facilities, the bailout programs that occurred. Bear Stearns, AIG, Citi, Bofa. And then things like TARP, which really required an active coordination with the fiscal authorities. Okay. Now, so you can see this is sort of the traditional response. The Fed funds rate was at 5%. And then they lowered it as um, stresses in financial markets occurred. Now, remember, there wasn't any sign of distress in, in the real economy in the United States really until um, mid-2008, I think. Um, but you know, fairly soon, we hit the zero lower bound, and that's the big constraint on, on traditional monetary policy. Now, as, as things are unfolding in financial markets, you can see the stress developing by looking at various indicators in, in the financial market. And Effie's is concentrating on the LIBOR uh, itself. But I think a, a, a better measure of distress in the financial markets is the LIBOR-OIS spread. And, and, and LIBOR is basically a transaction between two individual banks where they swap principal, whereas the OIS spread is a synthetic security where you trade a fixed rate for a floating rate. Okay? And, um, and so the OIS doesn't have that principal risk to it. And so I think this is actually you know, a very good measure of the extent of distress in the interbank markets. And as you can see, distress started to rise. So that, you know, that should roughly be about 10 basis points in normal times. And um, as things unfolded in financial markets, that rose and rose and rose. And then with the collapse of Lehman in, in October 2008, those, that ver- measure itself spiked up to 300%. Now, it did come down fairly quickly. And then, then I think a question is, to what extent something like TAF might have affected this. right? So, and there are studies that have looked at that, the Taylor and Williams study, and, and the other study by Andrews et al. And there's actually one more by Tao Wu and Restat, and, and he sort of replicates to a large extent, Taylor Williams' methodology, um, but asked, what was the overall effect rather than the individual auction effect? And he argues that it had a significant impact in reducing um, things. I think it's fairly convincing analysis, so. Um, okay. so um, uh, in these non-traditional times, we had provision of liquidity to depository institutions. So uh, initially, the Fed tried to encourage discount window lending. Um, lowering the lowering the term and increasing maturity. Uh, that, by and large, was not that effective in getting banks to lend from the discount window because of the stigma, among other things. And then they went to the term auction facility. And I'll talk more about the details of the term auction facility. And then another very important activity that the Fed did during the financial crisis was dollar swaps with central banks. Okay, And as, as, as Effie's graph showed, that the dollar swaps with central banks are actually the largest activity that the Fed engaged in during the crisis period. And I think that's important because I think the dollar swaps are really substitutes for TAF in the sense of providing funds to foreign, foreign banks. So, so I think it would be nice if you could think a little bit more about that, and I'll, and I'll come back to that. Okay, The next step, and, and so all along the way, you can think about the Fed as sort of having a model of how it interacts with financial markets and things like that, and, and, and coming to an impasse where it feels that it's no longer having as big an effect as possible, and then going beyond some barrier. Okay, So the first barrier was to essentially open the discount window to the primary dealers. Okay, So they're not depository institutions, and there were two things that the Fed did. One was that they basically swapped treasury securities for other securities. Okay? And so in this time of distress in the interbank market, the repo markets basically required treasury securities and not other, other asset-backed securities and things like that. And so you could take your asset-backed security, trade it in with a Fed for a treasury security, and then use a treasury security in the repo market. Okay? That was a term securities lending facility. And then the primary dealer credit facility was basically lending directly Via discount window type mechanism to the primary dealers. Okay. Um, okay, and then in autumn of 2008, everything really sort of um, uh, deteriorated rapidly. Um, GSEs placed into conservatorship. Leh- Lehman Brothers fell. AIG um, bailed out, and then the MM- money markets break the buck. And then you can see the effect on, on the economy if you looked at something like spreads in the commercial paper market. Okay? So spreads in the commercial paper market are a good metric for what firms in the economy and, and actually well-capitalized firms in the economy can borrow at, and, and those things rose substantially in, in, with the following collapse of Lehman. Okay? Um, now, asset-backed commercial paper, the spreads came down fairly quickly, and then the non-asset-backed stuff stayed high for uh, some period of time after that. Okay, so, um, and then the next line of defense was essentially, let's lend directly in markets, okay, and so if you think about the commercial paper market in the United States, the commercial paper market dried up completely, issuance dried up, and why does it dry up? Well, commercial paper, every dollar commercial paper traditionally is entirely backed by um, a bank line of credit, such that if a firm should have to exit the commercial paper market, it can... Pay off its commercial paper and access via a bank line of credit. Okay, and so once the banks are in peril, those lines of credit are no longer there. The commercial paper market is no longer operational. Okay, and if the commercial paper market in the United States is no longer operational, that means that even major major corporations in the U.S. have very hard time obtaining short-term funds. Okay, and so um, so uh, what did the Fed do? They direct. They essentially lend it directly in the commercial paper market themselves. Okay. Um, uh, when the money markets came into trouble, the Fed bought up money market securities themselves. Okay? And they also gave loans to depository institutions so they could buy up money market assets. All right? And then finally, the term asset-backed security loan facility was a recognition that lots of asset-backed um, loan um, collateralized or securitized loan markets were no longer functioning and something needed to be done. And the Fed stepped in and basically loaned directly in those markets as well. Okay. And you can see here, if you looked at um, asset-backed securities on the consumer side, you can see that these are the spreads that occur. Um, these aren't credit card spreads themselves. These are the spreads on the asset-backed securities. All right? and, and these reach to unprecedented heights of 500%. Right? And so, so what that means is if you're you know, trying to get a credit card loan, rates jump by 500% automatically for, because of this. Right. And then, um, but you can also see that once, um, once this um, program was put into place, those spreads came down fairly sharply in January of um, 2008. Right. And, and really to highlight the picture that these, a- these markets were essentially disappearing, um, this is the volume of consumer asset-backed securities that were issued during this time period. And in Q4 of 2008, the volume essentially went to zero. Okay. The market disappeared. Right? And then the Fed stepped in and started buying, and then the market reappears. Now, um, a lot of these programs actually had the very nice feature that the terms, once financial markets would um, um, uh, restore themselves to a certain extent, were no longer particularly desirable. And so naturally, um, firms, ec- uh, investors exited these types of facilities. And, then, and that's what we call the roll-off. And you can see that as the financial markets improved, these liquidity programs for financial firms um, came down substantially, and then the direct uh, lending and borrowing to investors also came down to a certain extent. Okay? So, um, all right. And so you know, now when you look on the balance sheet of the Fed, what's on the balance sheet is, is primarily what was purchased through these large-scale asset per- asset programs, okay? so QE1, QE2, QE3. Okay, and then that's the last thing is that um uh the Fed you know given the zero lower bound, the Fed engaged in these direct purchases of assets okay and, and um they target- what did they target they targeted long term treasuries right so operation twist type mechanisms, and then they also bought up agency debt fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and then um uh, m b s securities as well so um okay and and, and you know, and, and there's a, an issue there about how effective the Fed has been in terms of these um, LSAP programs, QE1, QE2, and QE3. My reading is that the Fed has had a substantial impact on on long-term rates, Treasury rates, and things like that. And, and there's more sophisticated econometric analysis that a number of people have done, but you can kind of see the picture here of the FRM in the residential mortgage market. It, it basically starts to come down in November of 2008. Uh, precisely when these um, LSAP programs were being put into place. Okay. So, um, so to summarize, uh, the Fed, essentially, its initial response was to expand liquidity available to depository institutions. Okay? And, and, and the thing to keep in mind is that TAF is very much part of that process. Okay? So it's very much a traditional Fed activity. Right. And then as the crisis deteriorated, there are these more unconventional and less monetary-like activities that the Fed engaged in. But, but certainly the TAF I would, I would put well in, in, in the camp of traditional monetary policy, lender of last resort type stuff. So now um, so some details on TAF, and Effie's mentioned these things. So these are anonymous auctions, so we get rid of the stigma associated with the discount window lending. Um, one important feature is that there's a three-day delay in receiving funds. And so you bid on a Friday, you don't get your funds until a Tuesday. And what that means is that it's not, you can't, if you're a basket case and the market is, is shut to you, you can't use a TAF as a way to get funds. And it was specific, specifically designed that way, right? So, um, so it wasn't like layman the day before could go and get funds from TAF, right? So, and then the terms were set, 28 days on some auctions, 84 days. And I think those are each sort of auction-specific. And, and then, importantly, who is eligible to borrow? Well, anybody who has access to the discount window is eligible to, eligible to borrow, and so that includes all U.S. depository institutions and then any foreign bank that has a foreign presence in terms of a branch or subsidiary. Okay. So in that sense, foreign and, and the U.S. are not distinct, and they're in no way distinct in the minds of the Fed in terms of this activity, as far as I can tell. Now the auction amount is advanced in advance, so that, so you can see the prospectus on the Fed. It'll say something like 75 billion will be auctioned on this day, and then there's a minimum bid, and that's usually the discount window rate, the primary rate. That's the minimum bid rate that would be set, and then individual banks are going to bid a quantity and a price, and then bids will be ranked by price, and and then, um, and then you know if 75 million were demanded at that auction, then it would be the the sort of the marginal bidder that will be the price that would be set. Now. In fact, most of these auctions were not oversubscribed, okay? And so most of the auctions, the price was simply what the Fed set the price to be in terms of the discount window at that time. And I actually think it would be nice to do some analysis of oversubscribed versus undersubscribed auctions to see if they differ in terms of the types of things that you're trying to think about, Effie. So I think that would be, that would be nice to think about. But basically an implication of this, and Effie's mentioned this, is that there's no explicit way to direct credit towards one bank versus another bank. It's an auction, and the, and the terms are set. Okay. Now then there's a the question of collateral, unencumbered collateral. And this is, I think, where um, Effie really needs to kind of clarify the paper. What do we mean by collateral? And, and this is my read, and, I, and you can correct me or tell me you know, how far off I am. But, <laughs> but my read is that the, the, these banks are always bar- have the potential to borrow from the discount window. And whenever you would borrow from the discount window, you would go to the bank, the, the Federal Reserve in your district, and they would look at your book and they would say, well, this is how many unencumbered loans you have in total. So this is what you're eligible to borrow. Okay? So when they do this, they will apply the haircut. Okay? They will say residential mortgages should get a haircut of this and, and commercial paper should get a haircut of that. But it's not that these are securities, like in the repo market, where you post a specific collateral and you say, I want a loan where I'm going to post you know, asset-backed securities versus something else. This is me going to the bank and saying, I have a house, I have a car, I have some other stuff, and all of it adds up to this, and once you apply the haircuts, it's 50% less, and I could borrow up to that amount. Right, and that's what my bid amount will be. And so, I think in the discussion of the paper, I think we need to really be clear about what we mean by collateral in this exercise. So, um, okay. So, so it's not posted collateral, and, and then that's not surprising that the vast amount of of these, um, in all cases, un, unencumbered collateral is is obviously exceeds the loan amount, but it's by a very large number. Okay. So the mean is like twenty five percent, right? And and. And then, if you look at the foreign banks, well, the foreign banks, in some sense, what they're trying to do is borrow a lot in the U.S. market, and they don't have that much collateral, and so you know, in their U.S. branch, and so it, they end up pushing that ratio up to 50, 60 percent, or something like that. Whereas, you know, if you look at Citibank in one of their auctions, they get a loan for 10, $10 um, million dollars or something, and they have you know, however many billions in collateral, right? So, um, okay, so so um, now. What about the type? Okay. so what, Again, the type is simply your book. Okay. And so you don't twist your collateral structure in order to get the loan. You just say, this is my collateral structure. And so in the regression analysis, I think what we're basically seeing is that foreign banks have invested in different activities in American banks. And that's always been the case. Okay. So a foreign branch in the United States essentially does not do residential mortgage lending at all. It will have no residential mortgages on its books. It won't post them as collateral. It will put money into asset-backed securities. It will post that as collateral. Okay? So, so I think what we're really learning here is just the structure of the asset side of foreign banks versus uh, domestic banks when we think about these issues. Okay, So, um, so TAF does not explicitly direct credit towards banks with more or less collateral, um, conditioned on satisfying the limit. All right. And it does not um, allocate um, funds to f- firms with certain forms of collateral either. Okay, I think that should be fairly clear. Okay, and and then again, I think that then Effie's sort of discussion of how do you use collateral as a pricing mechanism is, you know, I think needs to be really thought through a little bit harder in, in terms of that. I think so, and maybe have some thoughts on this, but. Um, OK, so what can we learn from the microdata? So there's this great panel of data that you can get. You can just pull it down from the Fed and look at it. Okay, Now, um, as Effie emphasized, price and terms are irrelevant to individual banks. We can just basically throw that information out. It's just each auction has a price and a term. Right? The collateral provides a breakdown of the borrower balance sheet Okay, in terms of what's on the balance sheet after haircuts have been applied by the Fed. That's what we see. Okay. Now, we don't know if this is a small bank or a large bank. And so, therefore, it doesn't really give us a sense as to what a loan demand might be, right? In some sense, what we'd like to ask the question is, how many loans is a certain type of bank demanding conditional on its characteristics, right? And, and Effie tried to deal with that a little bit by putting in a bank fixed effect, for example, which can control for size and stuff. But, but it's tricky, right? And, and, and so there are some very nice questions that we could start thinking about asking. You know, did banks look weaker in terms of CDS rates or something like that? Were they more likely to try and borrow in this market relative to other markets? Okay. But what we need to do that is I think we really need to match this data set to the micro call report data, where we see the individual banks' characteristics at a high frequency level. And I think that would be a very nice exercise to think about. OK? Um, but. okay. So what do we learn from the aggregates? Well, I think the nice thing we learned is that the foreign banks borrowed more in aggregate and relative to their available collateral. Okay? And, and I think that that's very consistent with the idea that foreign banks are basically using TAF to obtain dollar funding okay? and that was otherwise difficult to obtain. All right? And so one thing to do here, actually, you can get this off of the aggregate data, is you can get the net due to foreign office out of the weekly H-8 report, which tells you exactly how much money is flowing from U.S. foreign branches to their parents on a weekly basis. Okay? And it would be nice to see how well that correlates with TAF obtained for the foreign banks. Right? And if your story, I mean, you know, a natural story then is that this number is very correlated with, with the TAF money received by foreign banks. I think that would be a very nice sort of addition to your work to sort of show that right? So, so that's readily available, right? And so, so basically what's going on is that you have these very large foreign banks, and uh, Barclays, and Banpé um, Paribas, and, and SuckGen and all that, and they're large entities in their own countries, and they have a relatively small subsidiary in the United States. I mean, small relative to their total size. And what they're doing is they're getting funds in the United States through the U.S. market, and then they're channeling them to, the, to basically the European market. Okay, and and TAF provided the way to do that. Okay, and I think the Fed was very much aware that that's what was going on, and then they understood that, right? And so, you know, I think when we ask about what the Fed was doing in terms of TAF, we should be asking the question about how much did it auction, okay, at different times based on the distress that was occurring, say in the, you know, LIBOR market versus the U.S. market and things like that. And those are types of questions that, you know, was the U.S. Um, looking at just U.S. markets, or was it looking at, you know... I mean, in some sense, if you ask this question to a Fed guy, they will say, this doesn't make sense. These are global markets. You know, we're just providing liquidity. you provide liquidity, it's going to get to the LIBOR market no matter what. Right? So, I, you know, I think that would be their type of response, and, and um, so I think it's worth thinking about that. Okay. So then I think the policy question, purely from a fairly narrow perspective is are there other ways to achieve providing dollar funding that are maybe better from the perspective of the U.S. financial system, okay? And so what's the problem with TAF in terms of the United States? It's that it's exposing the Federal Reserve to balance sheet risk of foreign banks, okay? And that might be something that we would object to, okay? And, maybe the, and the Fed is very nervous about that too, I think, and so the question is would there be other ways to provide dollar funding right and so and that's really where the central bank swap lines come in you just sort of you know the fed leaves this you know a box of cash on on the ground and the central banks come in and they say we took you know 100 billion and we'll put it back tomorrow and you know everybody trusts each other cuz they're central banks right so that's what a swap line is so um so you know so so i think that's the alternative is we could we have done all of this stuff with swap lines and 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 why didn't we right and so Um, But, you know, at at the end of the day, the bottom line is that none of these financial markets will function without dollar liquidity, okay? It's not enough to have liquidity. You need dollar liquidity. These are mostly dollar transactions. You need dollar liquidity. And the European banks really were scrambling for dollar liquidity. And, you know, this times of, of financial market distress is an extreme demand for dollar safe haven assets. And really, it's only these types of assets, essentially US treasuries, that serve as collateral in things like these tri-party repo markets and, and things like that. right? And so, um, so everybody needs to scramble for dollars. And one way to get them was TAF if you were a foreign bank. Another way for the Fed to do it is to give it to the central banks themselves and hope that that goes to the right banks through, through their central banks. So, um, and then, you know, what is there a right combination? And, and I think those are the types of policy things I would think about in, in terms of this question. So, And I'm done. So. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> Second discussion is Ross Levine from Brown University.
3: So um, it's a pleasure to be here. There are potential pros and potential cons about having two discussants. Uh, The potential pros are that you have two different people with different views, providing different comments, and augmenting the discussion. And the potential cons is that you have two people with the same views, and you get a a repetition. And I think, unfortunately, in this case, there's going to be more of the repetition, and so I'll try to be at least brief. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to talk briefly about what I learned, um, and that's going to focus on the facts. In terms of talking about the speculation, I need to go also um, into a little bit of the details about what was TAF, and then I'll come back to the speculation. So I learned a lot. I mean, I did not know. Maybe other people knew. I did not know that uh, you know almost 60% of the funds that were lent out through TAF went to foreign banks. Um, And so it obviously raises a lot of questions in my mind, just like it raised in Effie's. It's like, you know, why was this the case? Uh, The second thing had to do with the nature of the collateral. Um, Why was this different? Um, And this seems to involve uh, some pretty gory details into exactly how collateral was determined. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take Simon's view that this just represents the book, but I don't know enough about the details in terms of, How the Fed at the discount window decides on haircuts and collateral—I simply don't have that level of of detail. So this raised a number of questions about um, what was going on. So there's, in some sense, there's um, two FE's. There's the FE that presented, where talked about—I'm not sure—which who kind of had a broader view of, of what was going on, and then there's the FE in the draft, which focuses quite a bit on the Fed purposely injecting money into particular, into particular banks. And so this is what I tended to focus on in, in my comments, and that's why I have to go through a little bit of, of the mechanics. So you know, the TAF was, was put in place, obviously, because there were liquidity problems in markets that the Fed was concerned about. Uh, People didn't, uh, banks were not borrowing through the discount window, open market operations were not working as effectively uh, as they might. And so the question was how to reduce the liquidity risk premium and provide term funds to depositories who needed it most. And that's kind of a crucial issue, this last term. Um, And this is stated again and again in the Fed documents that I read. It's how to get the funds to depositories that need it most. The term auction facility had three appealing uh, features. One, it was the Fed could control the quantity, here's how much is going to be injected into the system as a whole. It was competitive, this took away the stigma, and the issue was to broaden the allocation, which was part of the problem of why open market operations weren't working uh, very effectively, and again, to those who needed it most. And in this way, the goal was to um, alleviate this liquidity risk premium. Now the stated goal, and this is actually stated explicitly, was not to affect monetary policy aggregates through the TAF. Um, indeed, in some of the documentation, there was a notion that this could the Fed could offset this. I'm not sure if the Fed did, but obviously the Fed could offset any of the money allocated through the TAF funds. Um, so it was making monetary policy decisions potentially independently of these liquidity decisions. The goal was to allocate these funds. Okay, So it made an announcement of how much it was going to lend, it gave a specific dollar amount, it gave the terms of the offering and, and, the, and the maturity. Um, the bidding was any depository uh, institution who's eligible for credit from the discount window could go and make a bid for the TAF funds. You could bid, yeah. you could make two bids, um, and in uh, each bid would have an interest rate in the amount of money that you wanted. It was open to foreign banks, and obviously, you know, if the farm bank had multiple affiliates in, in the U.S., um, the total amount that could be and the total number of bids was uh, aggregated up so that you know each foreign um, uh, parent could only have two bids. Okay. Then there was the termination of the auction re- rewards. You would simply go down the demand schedule until you allocated all of the amount that you wanted. It was a single-price auction. There was one price. Um, I don't believe that you have information on the bids, so that you can't trace that out. Um, in terms of collateral, with the way it's stated in the, in the Fed documents and that on the, on the greater than 28-day um, <coughs> offerings, the advances in shall not exceed 75% of the collateral. The local feds would determine the quality of the collateral and the haircuts based on the same procedures that they used at the, at the discount window. Um, and so then this bring, brings me to the speculations and the kind of the, the, the quotations I'm going to bring up are from, are from the draft, and, and, and which is a little bit different from what Effie mentioned in, um, in, in his remarks. So again and again, it's this issue of why did the Fed inject money into foreign banks? Uh, why did the Fed try to inject liquidity into banks and the British Bankers Association banks in particular? The question that kept coming up is, you know, why did foreign banks, especially those in the BBA, bid more for TAF funds? So it could be that they wanted, they needed, had greater needs for dollar funding. Um, it could be that um, given the comparable credit, cost of credit at the ECB or the uh, UK central bank, it was cheaper to get it at TAF. I I don't know. Um, and... um I, I would like to know, but I, 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 like, I, I don't know. Why did the Fed accept riskier or collateral? Here I don't know, I, I, and this is the same issue, I don't know that they accepted riskier or collateral. Um, so I, I asked about this, uh, both uh, from uh, some uh, you know, colleagues not in the, the, the working in the same institution, but the, the professional colleagues at the New York Fed, and then I was visiting at the, um, the board in, in, in Washington about you know, did they change collateral, you know, for the particular banks? And they, they, the notion I got is that this was the notion I got that this would really be practically impossible to sort of custom design the collateral requirements for individual banks coming in for for TAF. Now, that's the Fed telling me that because that would be inconsistent with the sort of stated procedures. And um, I'm definitely not one to always believe what the Fed tells me, but. Um, I don't necessarily see evidence that they were doing anything along those lines. And so I kept coming back to this question of, I, 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 it seems very reasonable to me that European banks and the banks uh, that were participating in the LIBOR market directly um, had a greater demand for these funds. They bid more, they got it. But I'm not as sure why. So I don't know which way this, this, this goes. Um, So I learned new things from this paper, um, but the paper made me more confused about what was going on um, than I was when I was ignorant. Um, And I'm not sure that it's appropriate to take the perspective that kind of comes out again and again in the text that it was aimed at or tried to or attempted to inject funds in the uh, particular banks. So I'll stop there to reduce the uh, overlap.
0: Thank you very much. Do you want to sure. respond to them? You can and then take questions. Maybe
1: Literally from here. From here. So thank you very much for the discussion. And I apologize for being so late as I, um, in submitting it. And, and, and uh, the, the text that I've written, you're absolutely right, is, is awful. Um, <laughs> and and it, will, it will be corrected. Um, so it's important to note that um, I'm not trying to tell here some sort of a conspiracy theory. Um, it is interesting that the data shows that many of the loans went to foreign institutions and that uh, these foreign institutions use different collateral. It might completely reflect their book. But then the question is, why did banks that we know had similar books didn't pledge their collateral? You might say that maybe residential mortgages were even less liquid than asset- asset-backed securities CDOs, and that's the reason why or Bank of America would pledge them instead of the instead of instead of that but in terms of books or exposures to uh, to ABS we know that there were several uh, us institutions that had uh, very similar exposure um, so that's uh, that's the question now, the key uh, one more point by, uh, that uh, Simon made it's it's true that the the, the auctions at the end uh, by the end of the of uh, TAF were undersubscribed but many of the auctions when you in 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 a way it were oversubscribed by by a factor of two almost and absolutely this is something that one can use the information there and see maybe there, there is more uh, to do here the only thing that uh, um, comes out and this is not the Fed thing this is taking the, the the Fed data and looking into it is that and this 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 is something that you can see in table four when you run a regression of loan to collateral and uh, you include uh, and, and you have um, the dummies for the collateral type, you know, assuming that they are not time varying, and you have um, year-by-month fixed effects. The addition of the bank fixed effects um, affects the results uh, in a significant way. Uh, increases the explanatory power of the of the ratio uh, by a factor of three. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that this is going necessarily against the auction. You know, my view of the auction, and I might be completely wrong, is that. Uh, when you look into the Federal Reserve on, uh, on how they propose to have an auction, it's not as if you have an electronic system in which the auctions were submitted. You had to make a phone call to your original Fed, and perhaps there were some discussions leading to that phone call of what type of collateral should I post, or some haggling on the on the collateral book that I will I will have there. Um, you know, th- that's the question. You know, would you would you take it if I will have there, you know, 60% of ABS? This is completely speculation, but but. Um, from, from all of the, the fact that we see nothing in loan terms and in interest rates, completely consistent with the fact that they were cut at the auction level. The fact that we see uh, activity at uh, the loan size completely might be driven by the size of the financial institution. But the fact that we see some activity at the loan to collateral or the haircut, I think is, is interesting, and, and I, I'm not saying necessarily this, this is wrongdoing. This is a, a way to implement monetary policy when some of the other terms are uh, are, um, are limited. But uh, but I agree with you. I, I, I'm I'm also uh, um, I feel that uh, the paper doesn't give very um, good answers on why necessarily do you see more lending to the European banks. It might be the right thing to do. Um, but, uh, but the question is, um, you know, was this, what was the reason for that? Maybe I will be able to address this better in the next draft. Was this driven by some um, shocks to the balance sheet of this specific institution, or by the inability of them to pledge any other collateral compared to, um, compared to uh, US institutions? Thank you very much.
0: Questions? There, are, uh, I think our mics that will come around. So do you want
4: to start with Steve? I'll take a list, and then you can. So I had uh, two questions slash comments. Uh, the first was, I, I think you need to be more explicit. I would urge you to be more explicit on the the, uh, the issue of the Taylor-Williams versus McKnight-Sarkar-Wang uh, papers, disparate results. Should I read your paper conclude that one paper was right? Should I conclude they were both incorrect because they took too crude and aggregated a view of... Uh, Financial markets uh, and the like, and it seemed to me that you were dancing around uh, out of politeness. Uh, <laughs> but it seemed, but since that's the motivation for the uh, for, for much of the exercise, you you do need to say what was uh, uh, not a pre- uh, weak about both of the papers. I think you make a compelling argument that the aggregation that they engage in uh, masks uh, important effects. Uh, the second concern I had was just the lack of any economic theory to. Uh, couch the empirical results. I mean, you you made reference to why to talk about causality, for example. Uh, and uh, it, it seems to me that if you want to make progress in understanding uh, various phenomena that you've described, you're going to need to say something about markets. In other words, uh, I agree with both of the discussions, particularly Ross, that uh, you know sort of saying the Fed wanted to do something isn't really quite the right way to think about it. The Fed did something, and in equilibrium, the consequence was that uh, most of these uh, these loans went to foreign banks. Uh, similarly, and this is to follow up, Simon, it's not clear to me how one th- you know is is the right question to say does the inst- existence of this institution affect equilibrium interest rates, or is it the realizations of the auctions associated with the institutions that's the key feature? I mean, those are very different questions, you know. And uh, given analogy. There's a large literature on capital capital punishment deterrence that runs Granger causality regressions and finds that executions don't Granger cause uh, homicides and concludes there's no deterrent effect. Well, the answer is if you thought Gary Becker's right, you shouldn't find one because (laughs) it's the sanction regime, not the uh, not the realizations. And uh, and so uh, you know I saw you know you know nothing in this paper at least spoke to me about uh, having a theoretical framework. And then the final context in which you do that is if you want to talk seriously about the uh, desirability, quote unquote, of uh, of uh, revealing who uses uh, the identities of agents with respect to the discount window. I mean, it's easy to tell a story that uh, markets are more efficient when you add information. It's equally easy to tell a story that insurance markets break down when you add information. Because after all, if we knew uh, everybody's uh, health trajectories, that would be the end of any notion of uh, of pooling risks. And so, I think in absence of uh, of, of taking a much stronger stance on a theoretical framework, um you you're gonna be uh, limited to uh to descriptions as opposed to uh discussions of counterfactual evaluations of policies and the like
0: right. the no, so go, 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 do them do them one by one.
1: Okay so so uh thank you very much. Um i, I I'm not sure that they want to take a stand on the McCandles' uh or debate. Uh, I, I haven't done the. I have, this is not the objective of what I do. And uh, um, you know, the aggregate is always. I, I'm not criticizing the evaluation of the aggregate. I'm just saying that by looking into the micro-level data, we might obtain some new information. Um, I have to look into the into the new paper that uh, Simon was mentioning. But application of uh, of different methods or definition of the libor as the change in the libor or the level of the libor will lead to different results. And. Uh, um, you know, I, I think that they, that uh, that I'm not sure that they have, that this paper will have much to add to this debate. The paper is uh, is is a, you're right, is a theoretical. Most of most of the paper is descriptive, and um, I, I have to add more. Uh, notion of I, I, won't, I i'm not sure whether it's about the theory you know I, I would need a theory in order to evaluate the effectiveness but this is something that I gave up on evaluating this paper the effectiveness of stuff but i need it it's, one needs to think more carefully about the mechanism um, of the uh, um, determination of collateral haircuts in order to make a story of uh of how um, you know whether, whether whether what we observe is the book of the banks or what we observe is uh is um uh, something that uh, the fed, the fed wants to achieve.
0: Charlie? Uh,
5: strangely, I, I also was thinking about exactly the same two points, but I, I had a little <laughs> different uh, take on, on them. So my recollection is um, that on this comparison between McAndrews and Taylor is that actually the treatment effect is assumed differently in the two papers and that basically Taylor made a mistake. So I, I think it's just useful to for se- the sake of clarity in our discussion here to say that the treatment effect which is a dummy variable which takes a value of one for a period of time can either be defined correctly or incorrectly. Now on the second point the uh, I think that both of your discussants were right in that you want to think about the alternatives that the different banks face and of course you're you're thinking that way. So let me give my theoretical, uh, sort of what I think is the obvious theoretical way to to, to frame this. Um, A bank doesn't come to the discount window to discount treasury securities because treasury securities are already cash. You come to the discount window to discount uh, liquidity impacted instruments and those are going to be largely U.S. instruments. So even if Simon's point about needing dollars were wrong, there'd still be a selectivity bias toward wanting to discount the liquidity-impacted instruments. And then the question is, Ross's question, which is, well, which central bank do you go to? It seems to me kind of I would expect that if the instruments that are driving the initial shocks are U.S. assets, then... The central, I expect the U.S. Central Bank to provide more generous haircuts. I would be very surprised if it weren't true. And so given that the problem starts with U.S. asset-backed securities, and given that – so it, it seems like it's kind of obvious that, if, that the, the global financial system isn't just the U.S., and they're going to come so that the initial arrival at the Fed is reflecting the select two selectivity biases. One is U.S. asset selectivity bias. And the other is a central bank discounting selectivity bias. So it never troubled me that much that the large that the foreign banks were so early, so much early involved because I, I think there is a theoretical basis for th- expecting that. Um, so then my question from that is, can you actually tell, in some sense, the nationality of the assets that are being uh, collateralized here? That is. And, and can you make a comparison right. between the ECB, the Bank of England on the one hand, and, and the U.S.? Because it seems like getting into kind of the idea of is this really about U.S. assets for in some sense, originated in the U.S., portfolios under U.S. law, you know, so that, it, I don't know how much you can get at that, but that seems like a nice way to go to get at some of, some of these questions. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much, Charlie. So, so um, the last point is that y- you, there is there is um, there is an asset class uh, defined as international securities, and uh, indeed the foreign banks are more likely to uh, pledge them. But that's that's you know there's no cut of the asset-backed securities by the origination. The, the presumption there is that all other securities that are not classified as international securities are at least U.S. dollars denominated, even though you don't know who originated them.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
6: Well, whenever I'm at, I'm at Cato, I, it brings out my libertarian side. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it seems to me this review is very timely, uh, because there's a bit of a lull, especially after the successful Spanish funding this morning. Um, but it's it's certainly time to think now about bank stabilization policy to prepare for the next round, which is sure to occur uh, in the next year or two, um, and. Yeah. Everyone, all the discussion so far is focused on this as if there was just some peculiar, unexplained uh, uh, problem with something called liquidity uh, all around Europe and uh, North America, or not Canada, but U.S. Um, And uh, it seems to me that that's rather peculiar. You know, there's what caused the uh, illiquidity, and, and the answer seems obvious to me. It's obvious in the stock market, and that's the Complete insolvency of almost all the major banks of of uh, southern Europe and, and the U.S. I mean, you can see that in the stock market. The all the all the southern tier central banks or sorry uh, commercial banks sell at you know numbers like twenty or thirty percent. Uh, Citibank and Bank of America are both plugged right around thirty five percent. You have to go north in Europe to get to a to a a bank whose stock market value is anywhere close to traditional valuations of banks above market above book value. Um, these are all, w- would fall apart without the free government put that uh, keeps them all in business. Um, all the things you're talking about are, are byproducts of the free government put. Uh, I don't think there's really any doubt about that. Uh, and the evolution of modern banking in the, with the insidious influence of the free government put uh, is just remarkable. And we're going to have these problems as long as the free government put is there. Now, Dodd-Frank, in principle, has done a lot to equip uh, regulators to eliminate the free government put by making it possible for the first time to to stick it to the uh, long-term debt holders of banks. Now, it remains to be seen whether that's going to be exercised, but at least the tools are there. Uh, interestingly, no such tool exists in Europe. There is no provision in European law uh, to do anything for a bank except bail it out. Um, and so the free government put is having its insidious effect just more and more on commercial banks and, uh, in, uh, in Southern Europe. Um, I mean, this whole thing is just going to come crashing down and the problems that, that we're going to see, especially because uh, unlike the Fed, which has a claim on the federal government, the ECB has no claim on any government. The ECB itself is a completely precarious institution. Everybody right. thinks that the, F- the ECB is infinitely wealthy you know, has resources that can take care of everything, but, but the ECB, the ECB has no that. assets at all. Its balance sheet is meaningless, and it has no claim on any of the European governments, none whatsoever. It's a voluntary act to recapitalize the ECB, and there's no guarantee that the Germans would, who'd be the only people who'd be capable of doing it, would do it. So, y- the European banking system is just going to completely collapse sometime in the next few years, and all these problems, it's going to lap up on the on our shores too, and we're gonna see all these issues again. But I think treating it as if Bank of America and Citibank were anything but completely insolvent is a huge mistake. It's not a liquidity problem, it's an insolvency problem.
0: I didn't hear a question anywhere in there, but feel, <laughs> feel free to comment if you like. <laughs> <laughs> it's not limited to questions. Uh,
1: but respond if you want, if not. We'll go. So this, is, this is outside of the scope of the paper, but this is, you know, as I said at the end, something that, that I got interested in is that um what what is exactly again you know i this this is this is outside of the paper but uh it, it's unclear to me what is the fiduciary duty of the fed of the fed um when you think about a firm, an auditor gets into a firm and finds that a firm is under is there was fraud or there is a problem, the auditor needs to report um the fed doesn't seem to have this fiduciary duty because that has to hide under the veil of uh, systemic risk and the, the consequences of France. But I think that the information that we see here that many of the banks that borrowed earlier on from the Fed are the same banks that eventually either failed or basically have been nationalized. And these are the same uh, banks that either deliberately or had the books that, of assets that uh, were at the center of the crisis. One needs to think about whether the, the non-disclosure or the secrecy of the facility is actually desired or not. If the issue is about liquidity, then there should be any stigma of the discount window. If the issue is about liquidity, there is now information. The Fed discloses that just have lent money to Societe Generale, and if investors believe that this is the cause of liquidity, then the Iran the, that is based on liquidity should be, uh, um, should be stopped. But if the issue is about solvency, the fact that central banks lend to banks against risky collateral, and this information is being held away from the market, is making the situation worse because we are just kicking the can, uh, can, can down the road. The issue with debt securities is that they are not priced continuously, and they are only been priced in 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 in, um, in 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 the worst states of the world. And what is happening, what might have happened here, is that the information about the pricing of these securities, when they should have been priced, didn't really appear because that the Fed was, was lending against them. I'm not saying that the Fed shouldn't lend or that any other, other central bank shouldn't lend. They should lend to whom, whomever they want as long as they, view, as they believe that this serves their um, the purposes. But I do think that you know, some, some of my takeaway from the, so to speak, if you want to, to look into this as adverse selection as these banks that were eventually borrowing from against this risk securities eventually were more likely to fail, um, is that the Fed should lend and disclose disclose uh, whom, whom did they lend to and what did they lend against. But again, this is not something that has been taken directly from the paper just based on the fact that so much money was going on to um, European banks earlier in the crisis against st- assets that seems to be a priori be riskier when many uh, used to be, many believed that the real problems were in Citibank and Bank of America and not in Europe.
0: Bob Barsky? Yeah. Uh, Hang on one sec we get the mic.
7: Uh, So I I have one question, but um, first a a brief comment on Bob Hall and the um, exchange between Bob Hall and Effie. I have no doubt that a lot of what happened originated in genuine insolvency, but uh, the liquidity crisis that's derived from that imposes – I mean there's an externality that's imposed on lots of guys who are not fundamentally insolvent – So you still have to deal with the liquidity problem, whatever the, uh, you may want to punish the uh, insolvent guys, you still have to do something about the uh, liquidity externality. Um, The question that I had uh, concerned the foreign exchange dimension, we talked about uh, interest rates, and so there wasn't much action there. Uh, We talked about haircuts. Um, How does this interact in terms of the foreign exchange market? And uh, if you were to do a counterfactual like... uh, uh, Suppose the Fed didn't have this program. What would have uh, would there have been a um, a big uh, dollar appreciation? I'm not quite sure how to think about that.
1: Yeah, neither am I. Um, <laughs> I, I look, I, I think that this is I I I think this is this is very important question. I think I think in this in this context it's the. Uh, 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 uh Simons and Ross points about the other programs and, and especially the the um swap lines between the, uh, between the fed and the and um the e c b and uh, the bank of england and other banks were were crucial in basically uh, making sure that there won't be major gluts in, in the foreign exchange market because i think i think that that was the objective that was the main objective there um so i think that i, I think that those pol- do, do, the policy that used the swap lines was probably uh, the most effective on, on exchange rate. But I, I, haven't, I haven't tested that, but I think... That,
0: uh, Eric Rasmussen? Where was Eric? Roger, yeah.
8: Well, I've got a theory for you. Um, we can call it the biggest sucker theory. And we start with the, the foreign banks. I was reading one of these anecdotal books on the crisis that said when the investment bankers had some real piece of junk, they'd say, well, we can always sell it to the Germans. That the foreign banks bought a lot of extra bad bonds. Now, there would be rated AAA like everything else, but there would be really bad AAA ones. Okay, well, what if you're the foreign bank and suddenly you discover in the crisis you've got a really junky AAA, what can you do with it? Well, the Fed will take anything. Uh, Ross was saying they just look mechanically at whether it's AAA or maybe something else, they can't customize it. So um, at this stage, you're almost bankrupt, so a loan is almost like a sale of the asset. So you effectively sell, use as collateral, your junky bond to get a loan from the Fed. And that might explain Bank of America and Citigroup being high up on your list also if they were indeed some of the more biggest suckers on Wall Street. Yeah, they are.
6: but
8: if have no other assets, then the
5: but
2: they all had substantially other assets. I mean
8: they If they had substantial other assets. Got a secured asset, you got first, first dibs on that. Uh, did they, if you, weren't a, if you weren't a small depositor? Oh, sure, of course.
6: The, 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 the Europeans are completely committed to making good every face value claimant on every bank. That's, that's just unquestioned. There is no provision in any European law to do anything else.
0: There are there other questions? I didn't get all the names. Yeah. Can you state your name?
9: I'm uh, Ben Carliner from the Economic Strategy Institute. I, I have a question about the collateral that was used for the for the term auction facility. It was alluded to maybe by Mr. Gilchrist that this was not the same type of collateral that was used in uh, repo transactions in the wholesale money markets. And I want to know if, if that is actually true, if there were big differences in the type of collateral that were pledged for the term auction facility than otherwise would be used in repo. And along those lines, I'm wondering, you know, One of the things that you were wondering about is whether this facility had an impact on LIBOR. And my question is, in in unsecured lending, when unsecured lending markets break down, that's probably because of counterparty risk, that people don't want to lend to counterparties that they fear might not be solvent. So when unsecured lending markets break down, that's not so much about liquidity as about counterparty risk. Whereas with secured lending in the repo markets... Wouldn't the term auction facility have had more of an impact on trying to get the repo markets reopened and functioning properly again? So um,
1: it's an ex- excellent question about collateral. As far as you know, the TAF was was sub- subject to the same uh, um, collateral requirement as the discount window. And if you go to the we- to the Fed website, they actually has a table that updates you know quite frequently, in which they list the haircuts on different assets of by. A matrix of uh, of uh, of both um, maturity and and credit rating. The point where they have some leverage in which they can change it is that the um, uh, haircut applied to the unencumbered value of the collateral, which is supposed to be either mark to market if this is uh, if if this is possible, or use some other model. And this is where you have one might have some more discretion whether if there is an asset that is not very liquid, how would you value it? So the the, the the, the, let's say that you have um, you know, a haircut of 8%. So do you apply the 8% to, what it, to, to the value that is now mark to market? Or, or one can argue that mark to market is not the right, right way to do it, and you have to use some other model. This is where you, you have some variation. But otherwise, the, 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 there is a set of rules that applied in, in, in a quite detailed manner to asset types uh, by maturity and by credit rating that applies to the discount window and to tough.
0: Questions? Yeah, Jim Kahn. Mm-hmm.
10: i mean, just a comment on Bob Barsky's follow up to, to Bob Hall. I mean, so there's clearly some insolvency at the root of this, and then Bob Barsky alluded to the fact that, well, then you get some potential liquidity problems and there's externalities and so forth. It, so then the question becomes, does this Mechanism that the Fed set up. What 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 it, what properties does it have? And as, as far as I can tell, and from what you've said, it seems to, you know, d- like uh, draw the funds in the direction of the insolvent institutions more than the illiquid ones, and so it has exactly the you know opposite um, policy effects that 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 you'd want if you if you're if you're concerned about the moral hazard. Uh, and 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 punishing the the guys who went insolvent and 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 only helping the illiquid ones. It's, it seems like a very blunt um, instrument that ends up doing really. My, you know, my impression from from your results is that it, it's likely to have done the opposite. Um,
1: that. Yeah, it, it, it it's hard to tell because you know we discuss illiquidity and, in, and insolvency as if they were. It was easy to distinguish one from the other, but they have the same symptoms, and uh, you know, in many times only in hindsight we can know which one, was, which one was which was which. I think the interesting theoretical question that maybe emerged from this discussion is that if you think about the policy of, uh, of if you think about the, uh, the discount window stigma, is the stigma going to exist if the issue is liquidity, or is it going to exist if the issue is? Uh, Solvency and um, the question is whether, by revealing this, one can tell them apart. And I'm sure that you know m- more, more, more detailed analysis uh, is needed for that. But, uh, but you know, I don't think that the Fed thought that uh, this that the, the Fed knew for sure that these banks were insolvent. And uh, at the time, everyone probably seemed to be very illiquid when liquidity was was a concern. The only question is. Again, this is not something that emerges directly from the paper. This is what we had in this in, in this discussion: whether uh, um, secrecy of the of the facility is uh, is, is something that is desirable in, uh, in, when we are not sure whether the banks are insolvent or liquid.
0: Jim Dorn.
2: Yeah, hi, Jim Dorn with the Cato Institute. Um, just a quick question for Simon: um, you mentioned several times QE three. Uh, as far as I know, the Fed hasn't engaged in QE3 yet, engaged sorry. in QE1, and QE2, and twist <laughs> operation. So
8: I just wondered if you knew something that, that we didn't know.
2: No. no. <laughs> um, in 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 the lingo of people who look at the effects of these QE announcements, there's there was an episode that got labeled QE3 in, in the literature. So... It's also called MEP. It was sort of the, the last episode, which was this Operation Twist episode that occurred, so, but that's it. No, I don't know anything <laughs> beyond that, so um, but you know, I was reading the it. papers today, and maybe you know QE3 is coming, so um.
0: Any other questions? OK, uh, we're pretty much right on time. We have a break now until 3:30. Thank you very much.